Do you want to capture meaningful conversations that you care about? Spotify for Podcasters allows you to make a podcast super effortlessly, distribute it automatically everywhere, completely free, and even earn money doing it. Did I say free while making money? What happened to capitalism? Use your phone or computer, hit press record, upload, and start creating today. You can also monetize your podcast super effortlessly through features like ads and subscriptions through the platform. If you have been following the Discover More journey, you know that I've been using Spotify for Podcasters since 2020. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to spotify.com slash podcasters. Spotify.com slash podcasters to start creating immediately. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Discover More, where we strive to accelerate the learning process together through intentional dialogues. My name is Benoit. And my name is Aiden. This podcast was built on the foundation of approachable guests, synthesized experiences, and relatable lessons that will help you grow throughout your journey. Thank you for tuning in this week. We hope you enjoy and continue to discover more. Good morning, everyone. We hope you all enjoyed your weekend. Today's guest is Matthias Wiest, a gifted math teacher and endurance athlete. After graduating Northwestern with a mathematics major, Matthias went on to work for Teach for America and complete a 70-mile triathlon. Now, he lives in Rwanda and teaches for a company that aims to empower students to apply to universities and create opportunity through global education. Recently, Matthias has accomplished a feat known as Everesting, in which he cycled for over 15 hours until he reached the cumulative elevation of Mount Everest. That is a 29,000-foot vertical elevation climb over 165 miles. We discuss how he prepared for such a challenging task, as well as his powerful motivation for embarking on this journey. This episode shows that if your why is big enough, anything is possible. We also dive into the importance of structuring non-negotiables, setting supplementary goals, and balancing different types of focus. We hope you enjoy this episode of Discover More with us and Matthias Wiest. Thank you. Welcome to another episode of Discover More. Tonight, we have a very special guest. We have Mr. Matthias Wiest. He is my former roommate. We attended uh, graduate classes together and we did Teach for America about two and a half years ago. And I'm very excited to have him back. He is visiting for the holiday seasons and for the Christmas seasons from Rwanda. It's quite a long flight home and we're very honored and feel very special to have him today for this week's episode. So Mr. Wiest, for those people who do not know you, do not know your journey, can you share a little bit of your experience? What brought you here and what made you the person that you are today? Mr. Wiest, I like that. I was here for two years in Philadelphia before moving out to Rwanda. Teach for America, I was a math teacher. Uh, math is something which I started at university, um, studied mathematics, and it's it's been a passion since then. And I've been looking at different ways to explore math. Um, teaching was, was one of those avenues. Um, yeah, brought me to Philadelphia. After Teach for America, after living here, wanted to teach internationally, and that ultimately led me to Rwanda, where I teach at a college prep gap year program. So essentially students from around the region, uh, Rwanda, Burundi, DRC, South Sudan, 
they, they apply to this program and we help prepare them for applications to U.S. universities. So I've been doing the SAT prep. Next semester, we're doing a mock university uh, semester. I'll be teaching statistics and economics, and it's been a great experience. So, I mean, yeah, thank you for having me. I'm very, very happy to be home for the holidays. I'm very happy to be back in Philadelphia and excited to see where this conversation goes. So I think uh, some people may consider mathematics as like soft science and some people may consider it as hard science. But regardless, mm -hmm. mathematics is like the epitome and such a quantitative field. And I think you have to have a certain level of intellectual hardware to be able to study like that. Because just because you have the interest in some field like that with that difficulties, that level of quantitativeness, you have to have the you know, hardware to be able to align with your passion. And of course, Northwestern, as we all know, is considered as a public IV. So it is a very a rigorous college. It comes with, you know, of course, its own challenges. But what is it about mathematics that truly like kind of like drew you in? Because quantitative field is it's very broad. There's engineering, there's physics, there's quantum physics, there's you name it. The list goes on and on. What is it about mathematics, this specific field that really, truly, I think, drew you in? Yeah, there's no denying. I, I do like the purity of it. Just the fact that proofs work because they're tautologically true. They're constructed to work. There's no ambiguity there. I mean, a lot of people dislike about math that like there's there's one right answer. There, there's only one way to do it. Well, A, a that's false. There's usually many, many ways to solve something. Um, but there is something very reassuring in that concreteness at the same time, right? There's, you know, something beautiful about ratios holding consistent over you know, extremely large distances, values. Um, there's something beautiful about the consistency in, you know, regressions, statistics, how, how, how we can um, find patterns in huge, huge collections of data, in, in huge studies of, of nature. And being able to put actual, you know, numbers to that, I think is, is definitely something which uh, kept me interested. I think what drew me in, though, was the problem-solving aspect of it, was, was precisely the realization that there is no one way to solve a problem. Rather, you kind of just have to try many different approaches, you know, pull from whatever experiences you've had, um, see if something works, make sure that, you know, logically you're being consistent um, make, make sure that you account for all of your special cases. There was, there was something really interesting about that. And yeah, ultimately that, that kept me with math. You're the person I think that just gravitate towards challenges because there's refinery simplicity, right? Because even when we were both co-teachers, uh, we both taught math, you know, we mm. taught, I think a few grades above me to high school, to middle school. We have all these knowledges depth of knowledge about you know, algebra, geometry, whatever that may be. But the challenge of teaching is to convey what you know and to distill down to a simplistic format where the students can relate and understand. Yeah. And I think you had this innate ability to do that because I remember I was teaching slope to my students and I was like, how the fuck am I going to make this fun? How is slope fun? No, you just say rise you know? over run, rise over yeah, run. Yeah, exactly. Repeat, just right? memorize yeah, those slopes. So I came to you, I was like, how would you tackle this? topic, how would you distill down, how would you be able to teach this in a way that kids can learn right away? I don't even know what you uh, told me back then, but I just remember distinctively that 
damn, he had this ability to just simplify things, you know? Like I said, refinery and simplicity. Yeah. So, no, I, I just wanted to highlight that for the people because I think you have this uh, gravitation towards these challenges, which, you know, leads into my next question because sure. you're such a big person in terms of fitness, the fitness, the well-being, the challenges of the rigorous uh, physiological activities mm-hmm. has been part of your identity for so long. Yeah. And I know recently you've accomplished this major task, major feat that... I can't even fathom, I can't even dream of. And so, you know, I'm not gonna spoil any GC details, but I know it's Everesting, and of course there's Mountain Everest, but uh, just to reaffirm and to reconfirm with us and to the listeners out there, I would love to for you to walk us through what that was like, what what prompted that, the task of Everesting of 15 hours, you know, of yeah. just, just continuous and strenuous cycling and just the whole nine. Yeah, so I mean, for, most of the audience, I guess, who who's not who would not know what this is, um, Everesting, uh, it's a fiendishly simple concept. Um, the idea is that you pick a hill, and it has to be one hill, and you cycle up, and cycle down, cycle up, cycle down, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, until you accumulate the total elevation of Mount Everest in terms of the vertical feet gained. So. Um, until you reach 29,030 uh, feet in vertical elevation. It's about, what's that, five miles, something like that. And yeah, why did I do that? And it's an excellent question. Um, I, still, I still wonder that. Um, but I, no, so, so I mean, I think I'm someone who's driven very much by goals. Um, there have been few instances since I started taking athletics seriously, I'd say about five years ago. Since I started taking endurance sports seriously, there have been few instances where I haven't been working toward some goal. And while I do find pleasure and fulfillment in maintaining a general training plan, I'm much more motivated if I have something to work toward. So for some context, at Northwestern, I was a member of the rowing team, and goals there were, were, were very much laid out for you. You know, you had an ergometer test on this date. You had a competition on this date. You had another regatta on, you know, March 31st. Um, you had your nationals, uh, all sorts of stuff like that. So you, you had very concrete things to work toward. Um, once I graduated, um, I decided to keep rowing. Uh, I was lucky here in Philadelphia. There's an amazing rowing scene. Um, to all my teammates at Undine, who made it possible for me to keep rowing, I'm extraordinarily grateful. And yeah, I, I joined a rowing program. And again, you know, there were regattas which we competed at um, over the winter when there weren't races. You know, there were there were ergometer tests. Um, so yeah, always I had I had something to work toward. Um, Sorry, real quick, just for the audience, what is a what does that test entail? Ergometer, uh, rowing machine, um, anywhere. F- it could be a two-kilometer test, which is about six and a half minutes. It could be a six-kilometer test, that's about twenty minutes. Um, basically, set a number and go as hard as you can until that number is down to zero. Um, <laughs> it's it's not fun. Um, so I had that the the year before I left Philadelphia. I, I started training for a triathlon. So there, there there was a whole other thing involved with that. I started running. I started cycling. Um, but uh, moving to Rwanda, I found myself without a concrete goal. 
physiological so, goal. Yeah, yeah, pr- precisely. I mean, there, there, there were more abstract goals in terms of you know balancing personal life and and um, you know professional ambitions. Uh, but no, in, in terms of athletics, uh, no concrete goals. So, I mean, and and that was fine for the first couple months. But Everesting came along, and and this incredibly was not my idea. I, I know a lot of people who know me know me as the person who does ridiculous shit just, um, athletically just for the hell of it. Um, this was not my idea. It was another cyclist in Rwanda who I had met. Um, very experienced, proficient, ultra-cyclist. So an ultra-cyclist is someone who does you know, multi-day races, uh, thousand kilometers at a time. Um, yeah, ridiculous stuff. He came up with this, well, he didn't come up with Everesting, but he, he proposed it to, to our cycling group. And I had heard of it before, had absolutely no desire to do it. But, you know, when he, when he, he posed this challenge and I figured, you know, I want, to, I want something to train for. I want some sort of structure. And, and I began doing precisely that. So Everesting provided an area of focus. Ultimately, I trained for two and a half months, um, which is, you know, enough, enough to be able to sit down, you know, structure a training plan, meet certain intermediate milestones. And ultimately, uh, on the day of uh, climb 29,000 feet in vertical change over the course of 165 miles, um, total elapsed time of 15 and a half hours, uh, Definitely the craziest thing I've done athletically. The the only thing athletically which I've embarked on, which I didn't know whether I could finish. But that's one of the reasons why I think endurance sport is so important to me. It allows me to test those boundaries. It allows me to find some sort of structure and uh, see how my work in that structured time can come to fruition at the target event. And I know this isn't your first hyper-intensive activity. I know you accomplished triathlon before. I know you partook in Ironman, so which I'm sure it, it gave you that little bit of confidence, a little bit of foundation for such an intensive endurance event. This feels like yesterday where I remember I woke up on a Saturday in the U.S. time and I was half awake. And I was like, oh, I'll just check Instagram. Because as I started doing this podcast more, I don't really check my personal Instagram as much. And then you're on the first feed. And I looked into it. And it was just this meticulous layout of your like granola bars, this power bars, <laughs> your, your water bottle, your, your cycling equipment. I was like, dang. And then it's something like uh, stay in tune or something. I was, was like, like, I think it was like big day tomorrow. Or yeah, something. big day yeah. tomorrow. I was like, what is he trying to do with this, like, this layout of equipment? And then I'll press the next story and it's like pitch dark in your background and you look like you're, you're, you're recording something. So I turned the volume and you started explaining this, this construction, what you're about to take. And I will like Aiden and myself, I know he also watch your story. So we're both just clicking on the stories, like living by curiosity through your truly <laughs> like ultimate experience. And you, yeah, you're just keeping this update and you, you could tell this, this profound level of struggle you're going through. And I know this was a 15 hour span experience, but I'd love to talk about and ask you about some of the highlights oh, yeah. uh, on both spectrum of in terms of, cause I know how people experience runner's high and people go through such an intensive experience, but 
I think the word intensity is an underwhelming statement to describe what this went through. I mean, 160 miles in cycling, like what? Uh, I don't think I've ever cycled 160 miles in my 26 years of life, <laughs> you know, like honestly. Yeah. So yeah, I just like to dig a little bit deeper and then ask you about like some of the challenges, some of the highlights and mm-hmm. what you learned, uh, just like what the experience was like sure. overall. So highs, lows, um, intensity is an interesting word. Um, because, oh yeah, over the course of, you know, an entire day, the exercise level is most definitely not going to be intense. Um, mentally so, incredibly intense. But, um, you know, physiologically, I'm, I'm not doing anything that, you know, is, is pushing my my physical capabilities, right? If, if, if I was to rank on perceived effort any 10-minute chunk of time within the Everesting, right, it's going to be pretty, pretty low. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm not going, pushing crazy hard. What is intense is obviously the duration, the, the mental tedium, if you will. Um, and, yeah, lo- along with that come certainly a lot of highs and lows. So... We, we had chosen this hill on the outskirts of Kigali. Um, it's five and a half kilometers long, uh, 7% gradient. So over that hill, you gain about 1,300 feet elevation. So in order to get up to the height of Everest, you have to do it uh, 23 times. At the end of the 10th rep, I really did not know if I could finish. Uh, my legs were very heavy. You know, I, I, I arrived at the top of that 10th rep and there were a bunch of people cheering on. Uh, there, there was some food. I was able to stop, you know, refuel, mentally reset. And then actually the 11th rep was wonderful. Like, um, I, I, I think, yeah, your, your, your brain just goes through so many, you know, peaks and valleys over the course of, of, of such a long time. It's, it's, it's impossible to predict. It's very difficult to train for. And it, it's a purely unique experience. Um, so, I mean, yeah, something similar, like 11 felt great, 12 felt good. Um, 14, I was like, wow, okay, we've, we've only got nine to go. Um, I'm really struggling, but we're going to do this. Uh, you know, at 15, 16, it started raining. It started raining pretty hard. I had to, I had to pause. Because um, another thing about um, that hill, I, I actually crashed um, in the rain on that hill going downhill. Um, a couple months prior, so I, I didn't want to didn't want to mess with that at all. So that I mean that that paused through a wrench and things. I was I was sitting for forty five minutes while I could have been cycling. Um, so mentally that was tough to overcome. Uh, with with four to go, with three to go, I was just extraordinarily tired. Even with two to go, um, by that point Nicole, my girlfriend, was had had, had joined up on the uh, the top of the hill at the aid station, um, and yeah, I told her like. I, I know I have one rep left. I don't know if I have two. Um, so it wasn't really until I had started the last rep that, you know, the the endorphins kicked in. And I was like, okay, we're going to finish this. Um, it's going to be 15 hours after I started, but we're going to finish this. And, um, yeah, it was, it was definitely a, a high, which pushed me back to the top of that hill for that final rep. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's a journey. Um, I mean, obviously the training's a journey, but the, the event in and of itself, I, the closest thing I experienced to it was, was a half Ironman event. Uh, that's 70.3 triathlon. Um, just because 
that's the closest and it's it's nowhere near uh, the closest in terms of time duration uh, of an athletic event that I've ever done um, the the longest before that was an hour and 20 minutes um, so yeah over the course of 15 hours your, your brain starts doing weird stuff um, I can only there, there are people who do d- double Everestings, triple Everestings. Uh, they're, they're allowed to sleep for two hours between each attempt. Um, but uh, I can only imagine what, what goes through their minds. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, that's a remarkable story. Like, I think when you talk about kind of the mental component of it, I think that's one of the most interesting. Yeah. Um, especially that's kind of across endurance sports, whether it's marathon, mm. marathons, Ironmans, I'm sure. You know, you've done a lot of that with training for rowing, kind of. Yeah. It's not your first rodeo with things like that, but... I guess kind of a compound question one when things are easy kind of what's going on upstairs are you you know kind of in that flow state just running with it or even I've heard um, for example my uncle was a professor at uh, Villanova and he would do math problems in his head while he's running is there like any of that kind of stuff going on yeah you just be like running and doing proofs or something I mean (laughs) maybe not at that but are you like figuring out your life's I don't know life's problems or thinking through things kind of finding that flow state um, so when things are good, what's going on? And then when that doubt comes in, kind of when you had five left, when you didn't know what was going on, how did you push through that? Yeah, that's a good question. I think when things are good, you're not thinking about anything, at least for me. Um, when things are good, you know, I'm dialed in. I'm very in the moment. People talk about being present. That's, that's something which I... I mean, it's, it's funny because if, if you try too hard to be present, you're not going to be present. And... The second you realize that you're present, you're no longer present. Um, but th- I, I, I'd say, yeah, when, when, when things are going well, um, when, when, you're, you're, when you're not struggling mentally, for me, uh, it's sort of just tunnel vision. It's like, I'm going, and I, I'm sustaining this, and I'm, I'm, just, I'm just doing it. Like, I never exercise with music. Um, never run with music. Never, oh, cycling with music is just dangerous. Don't do that. So... Yeah, I, I say when things are going well, I don't even notice it. So when things are going mm-hmm. not so well, um, yeah, you start getting this doubt. Um, I was a little bit lucky, I think you could say. Um, I did have a reason why I wanted to conquer this hill beyond just like, can I do it? Um, as I mentioned a bit earlier, uh, two months prior, I had crashed um, descending the hill in the rain. I still have a brace on my finger, actually, right now, um, where my tendon had been uh, cut. So, yeah, looking down at the handlebars, you know, I, I have this strip of white around my finger, and, you know, that, that, that was a bit of a reminder of, like, you know, come on, keep pushing, right? You're, you're going to overcome this, you're going to conquer this. Um, so having, having a very good reason um, is important. Um, also... Having an optimism, having the confidence that the training that you've put in will carry you through. Like, I knew that my body was capable of doing this feat. I knew because, you know, I had put in 400, 500 kilometers a week. 
uh, you know, for, for a period of endurance base. I knew because, you know, I had done time trials on that hill. Like I, I knew I'd gotten a minute faster since I, since I had started, um, training. Um, I knew that for the two months prior, I had a very structured training plan. I was, I was sleeping well. I had been following good nutrition. I had all of working in my favor the entire time, the entire time leading up to it. So, so I knew on, on the day that like, you know, I had already put in so much of the hard work. And, and that, was, that, that was one of the things I, I learned with rowing is like, you know, you know, the day of is, you know, you're just having fun. You've already put in the hard work. Now, it's a lot easier to say that when your race is 20 minutes as opposed to 15 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, even, even those 15 hours, you know, that, that is a tiny fraction of the total time spent training. And, and I knew that logically. Um, so when, when things got quite difficult... I I try to keep that fresh in mind. How successful I was, well, I mean, who knows? But ultimately, it did pull through. Yeah. Absolutely, kind of reaffirming that you put in the work and yeah. trusting that it would pay off in the long run. Exactly. Yeah, that's a huge part of it. Nice. Yeah. So I like to quickly comment. I guess highlight what you said, Aiden. So you talked about how your uncle was a math professor and he would do math problems whenever he's running or racing. Uh, I don't know if you guys read uh, Think Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, but it's basically the idea that everyone has emotional brain and uh, analytical brain, and it's physiologically, neurologically impossible for someone to have emotional response and doing analytical thing at the same time, because uh, most of the time our emotional brain is in the driving seat, and the analytical brain uh, takes a side seat because uh, to be analytical, it takes a lot more effort, and our, we are evolutionally designed and we evolved to a point where we'll take shortcuts because the world is overwhelming. So your 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 brain looks for shortcuts to optimize your day to day activities, right? Mm. And they, there's like a few, I guess, hacks or tips uh, in mental health field because I'm super involved in mental yeah, health sure. field that whenever you have some sort of negative emotional response, such as anger, jealousy, like resentment, sadness, whatever that may be you come up with like not even a complex question, just some sort of analytical question, whether it's a simple math problem that your uncle does, uh, it forces your brain to switch yeah. from emotional brain to analytical brain and then your emotional response dissipates. Try it out sometimes. Mm. It really, it's a very, very effective and time efficient tool. So I never thought about that, but it makes a lot of sense logically, uh, which leads to my question. So you talked about this ultra event is an experience itself. And you mm. talked about the fact that the planning was also a journey. Yeah. And you talked about planning and training for 11 weeks is very tough. And I just heard this term recently. It's called priming. Is a Tony Robbins. I'm not sure if he coined this term, but I know different people use it differently. But priming is basically practicing and priming yourself to the environment that you're going to do. So if you have a speech to give a lot of people uh, practice priming to uh, practice, the speech is on the same stage to familiarize yourself with the environment okay. so that there is no surprises on the day of events. So I like to uh, dig a little bit deeper about your, your planning routines, yeah, yeah. Uh, what kind of priming you did. And on the day of, because you talked about, you have this reassurance, this affirmation, this confidence that you the input you put in will guarantee an out, like output, right? To a certain level, you know, your physiology, you're capable of doing it. So mental aspects is the only uncertainty because you haven't done it yet, right? Correct. And I think that's similar to the idea of like text anxiety. A lot of people go into a test, they have the knowledge people put on top. If you did the prepping, if you did the work, yeah. you can practice. But some people have test anxiety, which like hinders their outcome of the scores or whatever that may be. And I think everyone to a certain level of degrees have that gap of how to translate what you know into yeah. the actual performance. Mm-hmm. 
So I like to know what kind of like rituals you do in the morning. Did you do anything special or anything on the day of to make sure that you can truly prime yourself because you already did the work, but how did you translate that to the performance side? I know it's a loaded yeah, question. Yeah, no, no, there, there's definitely a lot going on there. Um, so I'm actually going to start on the training side of things and then move to the day of, I think. Um, so, I mean, in addition to, you know, the long rides, the hill repeats, etc. um, mental awareness was definitely a big part of my training. I mean, especially in the, the week leading up to it in terms of visualizations, because I knew two months prior, you know, 11 weeks, 12 weeks prior, I knew that this was going to be the most ridiculous, <laughs> most difficult thing I had ever done. Um, and I knew that the, the mental side of things was going to be the most important. So, I mean, I, I incorporated a lot of yoga into my training. I mean, it's good for, you know, stability of your joints, core stability. Um, but if you do it right, also really effective on in terms of being present and, and thinking in the current moment. And well, I, pre precisely what I think what I mentioned earlier about being present, right? Um, you, you practice that. It's, it's, it's something which you practice. And, and, and again, you can't exactly practice it deliberately. You can't say like, okay, now I'm going to be present. But, you know, by focusing, by turning your thoughts inwards, by focusing instead on, you know, how your body is feeling and why it's feeling that way, um, it, it allows you to basically turn my thoughts inward and, and keep, keep moving forward, you know, recognizing how my body's feeling, all of that. Yeah, there was the mental training, which was a part of the entire picture. Um, uh, that isn't to say that there weren't a lot of miles put in. I mean, I spent the longest ride I did on that hill. So going up and down and up and down before the event was uh, six repeats. Um, it took about four hours, um, which... You know, also helps with not only the physical side of things. I mean, you know, four hours in your your endurance zone is a solid workout. But also, you know, spending four hours on the same hill is is a good primer for for what you're going to do. So, I mean, there was definitely an aspect of the training for you know just getting used to being there. And and this is true for any training plan, right? To stay consistent, you have to keep variety in there as well so they're you know obviously riding other places um, different intensity level workouts so I wasn't just doing the the, the easy riding if you will that um, I would be doing on the on the day of you know I was doing um, higher intensity intervals I didn't really do much sprint work but definitely you know threshold work like the the, the type of work where you know you're really pushing yourself but it's sustainable and, you know, just trying to keep an overall, you know, well-rounded level of fitness all, all played into it. So, yeah, a lot of miles, um, definitely a lot of practice uh, priming, if you will, on, on that hill. Um, and then training the mental side of things. So, I mean, yeah, on the day of, there was a lot of excitement. I mean, this was weeks of training um, coming, coming to a head. And... Um, that, that excitement, it started high and, you know, it came back in waves throughout the event. Um, and I, you know, definitely correlated with my mental state, um, during the event as well. 
I just want to quickly comment on the fact that your injury is in your middle finger. So I feel like every time you look at the middle finger, it's like a big fuck you to yeah. the hill and the knee. Exactly, trigger. right. Uh, I don't know if you did this knowingly or unknowingly, but I, I think that's like a subcategory or I think it reminds me of like trauma therapy. Mm, yeah. So a lot of times people have go through a trauma, but the trauma itself is not traumatic. It's an emotional response that you attach to the incident that gives you that traumatic, that, that PTSD. And a lot of trauma therapy, they work with the patients and clients to try and help them to, you know, on an increment level, try to relive that trauma to uh, gradually, I guess, detach the emotional response to it, right? But what you did is similar to mental override. So before, <laughs> sure. before this ever lasting, when you went on the hill, you got into that, I'm assuming it was like a severe accident or incident. And when you go to that hill, the only emotional response you have is the fear, right? And then the fact that like, Life's fragile, you survived, but it was a pretty severe you know, accident. But now when you look back at the hill, when you look at the hill, you forget about, maybe you don't forget about the incident entirely, but the most refreshing memory would be the fact that you accomplished everlasting, everesting. So I think it's, it's like a mental override. So it's kind of cool that you did that. Yeah. So I just wanted to highlight that uh, because we, on this show and on my personal professional life, I've been more fascinated by the mental health and a lot yeah. of things that comes with it. So so I to highlight that for everyone. No, I, I, I think that's an excellent point. And, and this, it, it is a really special hill. Actually, the first time I visited Rwanda, before I moved there, I remember driving, driving up it, uh, going out of Kigali, and I was like, wow, this would be an excellent hill to cycle. Um, it was one of the first rides I did when I moved to Rwanda. Um, and yeah, ultimately, I, I, I didn't want that crash on a rainy day to... I mean, I think it's still going to be associated with that hill, but I don't want it to be the defining aspect. Um, so I think, yeah, what you bring up is definitely part of that motivation as well. Yeah. Yeah, that reminds me of the quote that I think, I might butcher this, but I think someone <laughs> on the line of success equals to okay. preparation meets opportunity. Oh, sure. So without the preparation, the opportunity of ever seeing presented to you, but you're going to fail miserably because without the preparation and I think that applies to every aspect of the life mm. so yeah I think very very well said so while the athleticism and active lifestyle was something that just emerged yeah. what about the role of goals in the way you conducted yourself whether that's in academics or other accomplishments so was goals always something that you fixated on or I guess held yourself accountable to throughout your childhood it's an excellent question because um, I'd say yes to an extent, but I'd also say my fixation on goals has developed um, and evolved a lot since I started training. Um, I think just because training puts that into a very you know into a very stark light that you know you have these goals um, and it's something to work toward, and this is how we're going to structure it, and these are different resources you can draw on. Now I. I think that informs my professional work uh, today and, and last year during Teach for America, um, during, during college, preparing for exams. Um, before I started you know, training seriously, definitely you know, goals, goals were important, um, whether that be you know, a recital, I, I played piano until I was 18, whether that be you know, the, the SATs. Um, I think I was not quite as fixated on it, rather, on, on goals that is, rather I was always very cognizant of maintaining a balance in terms of the things I did. 
and I, I think that's that's true to this day. I, I don't think you know having a very singular goal and fixating on that. I don't think that that is exclusive from you know balancing your your life with many things. Um, but I'd say you know throughout childhood, the priority was definitely on you know staying as well rounded as I could, not getting too tied up in in one thing um and i'd say that perhaps even more than goals is, is something which which has informed um how how i interact with the world today how so do you care to yeah, unpack yeah, that a little bit kind of like the jack of all trades i guess approach because i think that's something we talk a lot about with all of the knowledge that's out there just at your fingertips with YouTube yeah. and anything is accessible and kind of like a, spe- a specialization type um, mm-hmm. role, like just with from a knowledge standpoint, obviously, there's obviously the technical aspects and things like that. But I think having that jack of all trades, being able to understand or talk about a number of different experiences and skills is something that's valuable. So is that something that you've, I guess, embraced and continue to work at? I mean, yes, um, I agree that it's valuable and it, I'm definitely interested in a number of things. Um, I, I, would, I would frame it less as a jack-of-all-trades sort of thing and, and more as, you know, finding a balance with whatever you're focusing on. So, for, for example, if we are going to, let's look at the last two years in Philadelphia. Um, you know, my primary goals were entirely, you know, professional um, making sure that I was ready in the classroom, making sure that I was getting things done efficiently, staying on top of you know grad school deadlines, all sorts of stuff. But fixating on that goal, I would have gone crazy. Um, so rather than simply fixating on that goal, that goal is a priority, but equally important is doing something unrelated to that goal. So, you know, the first year it was, you know, I, I, I was rowing still. Uh, I, I had the opportunity to go to, um, you know, classical music concerts downtown. Second year uh, training took a much bigger uh, place in my life. And, and even though my primary goals were still professional, mentally I was able to balance that with like, you know, okay, between the hours of you know 4:50 a.m. and 6:30 a.m., my only you know target is you know training, um, and after that I can focus solely on on, on work. Um, but I think that helped in terms of not burning out, um, and it, it's it's that realization which I think does draw a bit more from from my childhood and like. Uh, so, I mean, sometimes I look at the amount of stuff I did in high school and, and it, it's, it's crazy. I mean, you know, practicing piano conservatively six hours a week, uh, you know, s- sports, um, another 10 hours a week. Uh, and then, and then of course the academic, uh, workload on top of that. But the, the main takeaway I still have from that is like, you know, I wasn't going to obsess, I wasn't going to focus solely on one thing. I was going to make sure that, you know, maybe I have a, I have a priority, but I make sure that that priority is balanced out by other things. Um, that's reflected in, 
in my studies at university, right? I, I focused primarily on mathematics, but I wasn't going to make, I wasn't going to go crazy over, over these, these really difficult math problem sets, right? I, I, I knew that I had reading assignments to do for history. Um, and mentally that was a really good balance for, for being able to, you know, maintain focus on, on math as well. So I think that that is more of the the balance um, and the sort of roundedness, if you will, that has informed a lot of goal setting as well. Right? It's, it's informed a lot of how I how I set goals and and approach them. Like to set complementary goals, so to speak. Yeah. Like yeah, a goal me a that might complement something mm-hmm. bigger goal or something that you put say like call it a top tier goal and then a secondary goal that may yeah. even reinforce that top goal. Yeah. I, I think, I think compliment, um, sometimes, um, supplement might be a better, a better word. Compliment often, I think like they, they go together, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to maybe balancing, balancing out. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it sounds like you have this compass of hyper efficiency that got you to enables you to do all these things yeah. and being efficient with your time. And I know I just wanted to provide a little bit of context for people out there who is not very familiar with Teach for America and what the experience entails. Because uh, so uh, Matthias and myself were, pr- were both very disciplined. We have pretty good work ethics, I would say. And, you know, myself, I'm in the Army and all that. But even until this day, I think Teach for America is definitely one of the most profoundly challenging experiences I've took on. But just to come down to not just like work ethics, aside from the emotional baggage and from having to manage the classroom, dealing with these inner city kids who come from various level of socioeconomic backgrounds, even that aside just from the sheer hours aspect is you would, we will work like 50, 50 hours a week, just prepping lesson plans, doing research, you know, how to, how can we execute, how can we prepare and plan the lessons we're going to teach these kids who will come with all sorts of emotional baggages and how can we execute on those lesson plans, you know? And that's about 55 hours on average. Mm-hmm. And then we will go to grad school at Penn and take night classes, which is another, you know, t- like full time. So we were putting on average 75, 80 hours a week, right? And I heard this recently that like the busiest people in the world have the most time because whether you use a terminology mm-hmm. of time chunking or time blocking, uh, interchangeably, what they essentially mean is you chunk a certain amount of time or you block out a certain amount of time to prioritize one goal like a focal point that you, you mentioned yeah. and then you create everything other goals to supplement that main focal point you know but all of those are possible only possible when you I don't know if it's time management piece because I think it's not realistic to manage every minute and every waking hour that's a hell of a boring life to live in but rather have that true focal priorities and how can you uh, maximize and uh, with efficiency you know so yeah, but it sounds like like the true compass and I guess the true metrics or whatever the where you want to use that guides you and enables you to all these things is that hyper efficiency aspect. And my question is like, what started that? You know, like what made you or what gave you that obsession over being so hyper efficient? Because uh, you know, in the thing that you answered, you told us you've never pulled an all-nighter in your mm-hmm. life which I remember in college when I had a lot more stamina and I was a youngin back in the days. Youngin. I would pull on that just for the heck of it. I would literally pull on that just to see if I can do it, just for fun, because I had the energy too, right? And, you know, most people procrastinate because they don't manage their time very well. They don't really know how to time block, how to prioritize one goal. But the fact that you've never pulled on that with a major in mathematics and two minors, or even in Teach for America, I think 
when we look at our core years, right? I would, I could confidently say we both definitely had a very, very fine-tuned work ethics. But when we compared it to all our peers, we were never startled. We were never overwhelmed with work. What stressed us is emotional peace because yeah. we didn't come from the education background. We didn't know, like, I'm not used to kids half my size and less than half my age to, like, cuss me out, call me with all these racial slurs because of their, you know, like, trust issues or abandonment issues, wherever they may be they're coming from. That's what stressed us out. But when, when we looked at our work ethics, when we looked at how we manage our time, how we uh, completed all the tasks, we were never overwhelmed. But yeah, I'm just curious, like, what gave you the initial drive of okay. the obsession over just being efficient? My efficiency was born of uh, necessity, privilege, and I'd say to an extent, uh, relatively strict parents. Um, I actually want to start with the second point. I mean, I think I, I was able to learn prioritization skills. I was able to learn efficiency early on in life because I didn't have to worry about, you know, financial stability. I didn't have to worry about food on the table. I didn't have to worry about, you know, parents leaving. And, and that's, that's a privilege which is definitely not afforded to a lot of people. So I want, I want to, to recognize that. that. That's a very strong platform. Um, which which was working in my favor. Um, not to say that anyone who who didn't have that is incapable of efficiency um, by any means, but um, for me that's definitely the truth. So so moving on from that, yeah, I think my efficiency was was born of necessity. Uh, Reference this earlier, but high school was a very hectic time. I mean, you know, AP classes, sports, music. I, I was a very uh, overly, well, maybe, maybe, yeah, I'd say overly scheduled um, child. But at the same time, I, I wasn't someone who was going to back away from that. I, I was going to get it done, no matter how much it, it, it took. There, there's something I always find reassuring whenever I'm facing an academic deadline. I mean, it's the way I think about it, like, this paper... It's going to get written by me. It's going to get written because it always has, right? Um, and, and it's a bit, it's a bit illogical, but it, it is reassuring that like to, to have that in the background and and, and the, the understanding that like this is going to get done because it has to get done. Um, so yeah, efficiency born out of necessity. When when you are you know doing class from eight until three thirty, and then sports until five thirty, home at six. Uh, you know, homework on top of that, maybe 45 minutes practicing the piano. Um, and where the, where the strict parents might come in is like, you know, bedtime at 11, right? You're, you're, you're going to be getting your, your, uh, you know, proper, proper sleep. Truly Asian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just a touch. Um, uh, right. If, if you know what time you have to work with, you, you don't have any other option than to make sure that you're working efficiently, to make sure that you're getting things done. And, and if you aren't working efficiently, you, you learn very quickly that this is not sustainable. Um, I think what, so, so that, was, that was the foundation um, for it. Um, I think what really cemented that was, was definitely Northwestern and, and the quarter system. Um, I'll sing praises to the fact that it's, it's allowed me to study so many different things. 
but it is it is very fast paced. Um, there's a lot of volume covered in ten weeks time, um, and uh, you know lots the the midterms, which are usually more spaced out. You know you have one every three or four weeks, and and even if your class load might be a little bit less, you know the the amount of reading, the amount of problem sets will still be um, commensurate with. Uh, with with a proper you know full semester class, having those academic demands right uh, necessitates efficiency. Um, on top of that, being a part of the rowing team, that was that was kind of I I don't want to say that it was a non negotiable for me, but I knew that having a balance to this heavy, heavy academic um, life was extremely important for me. So like. I knew that having that balance was going to be the thing that got me through um, Northwestern. So that was a priority. Uh, and then, so so the, so that means right. You know, I'm, I'm getting up at you know four fifty in the morning most most of my college career. And well, if I want to perform athletically, if I want to perform academically, I I need my rest. So that means you know going to bed before ten a ten p.m. Um, when, when you structure your non-negotiables, right? Like, okay, I'm going to be done with work, with, with homework by 10 PM, right? I am going to wake up at this time, right? I, and, and I'm going to, and it's going to get done because it has to, it, it brought an urgency, which I think is, is, is important to note. So Matthias, uh, yeah, it sounds like you're extremely disciplined and because we all have to recognize the fact that everyone is gifted and given a finite amount of willpower throughout their lifetime and it's impossible to achieve flow state or be on quote unquote 24-7. I mean, that's just not realistic because we have finite mental energy. So I'm wondering because you're able to so optimize and streamline your day-to-day activity with your willpower that you have i wonder how that manifests in other aspects of your life like do you not exert as much effort or your mental energy on certain activities because you have to like streamline all your effort to truly achieve the one or few things you want to achieve that day but yeah i wonder how that like manifests or how that displays in your day-to-day life um yeah no i definitely want to to echo that point that um you can't be on all the time, right? And and even when we're talking about um, being extremely efficient and extremely hardworking, and you know, getting things done because they have to get done, this this is where I think my sort of uh, you know supplementary priorities might might come into play, might might help out a bit. For me, being on athletically is very very different than being on. Uh, academically, professionally, what you will. I mentioned the the level of focus which I try to bring to to endurance sports is is a different type of focus than what I bring to um, academic endeavors. So, for example, like when I'm running, I'm focusing on hitting my pace zones. I'm not focusing on solving math equations, right? I'm zoning in. Right, I, I'm I'm only worried about finding this flow state, if you will. I'm I'm only concerned with finding the pace that feels right. When I'm working academically, 
right? It's, it's an entirely different level of, it's an entirely different type of focus. I'm, I'm critically thinking about the problem. I'm attacking it from different sides. I'm trying things, I'm failing, I'm trying again. It's, it's much more dynamic, I think, the, that, that type of focus academically. Um, and, and I think something you, you could say uh, professionally, um, obviously it depends on your profession, but um, your professional focus would be, would be more similar to the academic focus. Um, so in terms of, right, how do, you, how do you maintain focus? How do you maintain efficiency? Um, I, I try to, right, right the, the focus I have for athletics is, is actually, um, it balances the focus I have for, you know, for my, for my professional work. And now, now that I'm, right, I'm in a position where I am not, you know, working 80 hours a week or whatever, um, I'm, I'm able to, to balance that with like, you know, other, other mental activities, you know, you know, relaxing, watching TV, um, listening to music. One, one thing, and multiple studies have shown this, but like people work most effectively when they're able to switch their focus every, every 45 minutes to an hour. One, one thing which uh, incredibly got me through uh, the first year of Teach for America was like, um, 20 minute TV show. Bojack Horseman. Yeah. I remember. <laughs> yeah. I remember. Um, please don't typecast me. But Bojack <laughs> is incredible. Um, <laughs> no, yeah. I, I, like, like just being able to, you know, disengage, think about something else. Um, I mean, you know, Bojack isn't the most, um, you know, mind numbing uh, show, but like it, it does allow you to focus on something else. Yeah, having having that uh, outlet, having that possibility, um, enables you to maintain focus in other parts of, of your life. So I mean, it's thing is, it's going to be different for everyone. You have to find your own different ways to focus. For me, yeah, it's been athletics. Uh, it's been music, um, just basic entertainment. But that's allowed me to maintain focus in in other parts of my life. Do you have like certain mental cues or how to differentiate between different types of focus? Mm. Or I guess what I'm asking is, uh, is it such like a instinctive for you because you've been doing it for so long or how can you train someone who is not as disciplined or not as routine or custom as you are? How can you teach someone else how to differentiate those different type of focuses? Yeah, so I mean, it definitely... I mean, I'm 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 in no position to <laughs> um, determine uh, how how others can find their own focus, but like it be, because be, because it is so individual. Um, I mean, I would say like when you're stressed out, what do you do? Um, that's that's probably a good place to start, and that has changed for me over time, and I'm sure it it changes for others as well. But like, if you can identify. Um, something which will let you take your mind off whatever you are you are focused on um, that can be that can be extremely useful. I mean, yeah, during Teach for America, even you know the the work we did at Penn was different in focus enough to you know the emotional processing which I was doing for teaching the the lesson planning um, the 
you know, the, the, the professional focus, that, that was different enough than, than the academic focus. That I was like, okay, I'm, I'm being overwhelmed thinking about, you know, my teaching right now. I'm going to instead, you know, read this thing about, you know, sociological study about education in schools, right? Um, and, and that was a, enough of a change for me that it was able to, like, reset mentally um, while, while still getting things done. That's an important thing. You, you don't always have to be getting things done, but if conditions necessitate efficiency, right, you want to make sure that you're, you're being able to change focus so that you're still getting things done. And again, this is, this is coming from a place of someone, you know, who is, is capable of thinking clearly, um, doesn't, doesn't really have other major things to worry about in terms of sickness, um, financial difficulties, um, mental health problems, um, because those those obviously all play huge factors in in goal planning in in staying focused. Um, so as I, I I do want to put that out there, but it's um, that's definitely how I've been able to navigate staying focused, if you will. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like intentionality is what drives you because you're intentional about the boiling or the overwhelming point, right? So now you're being, yeah. because you're so intentional about intention before you get to, because a lot of people are reactive, people get overwhelmed yeah, yeah. by their work and then now they're reacting and trying to scramble their solutions like, oh shit, I'm overwhelmed at this point, what should I do to get back to that flow state? But rather because you're so intentional about your action and your your mental clarity is there to, to hold you in peace, to hold your ground, now you're being preventive and proactive so that before you get to the boiling point, you know where to stop and you, you do certain tasks that induces that condition that you can quick or switch tasks between different focus points. But that's what I took. But I think that is a very effective, um, I guess, solution or measure. Your, your point on reactivity uh, versus, versus proactivity. And, and again, I, I think everyone is capable of proactivity to different degrees. Um, but I, I think it's an important goal. Uh, to say the least, for, for everyone, if, if they can. Uh, proactivity will always beat out reactivity. What are some strategies on developing productivity? Because even going back kind of full circle to what you were talking about with your goals, yeah. that becomes clear that it's really getting clear on what you value and what things are important to you. So in being proactive, you almost have to take a look at your own values and what you're yeah. what's important to you, right? Uh-huh. That's ultimately what's driving your intentions, how you manage your time and what your focus is. But I guess how do you strategize those goals and I guess corresponding proactivity to those things? Is that just taking like a hard look in the mirror or do you sometimes like journal through what you're thinking or when you're out on a bike ride, are you like thinking through these things, kind of like high strategy kind of things or what does that process look like? No, I mean, right. Proactivity, I think, is really tied in with um, priorities. Yeah. Um, ultimately, I, 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 and, and those priorities, right, it's like what has to get done. Right, lesson plans have to get done. Otherwise, I'm not serving my students. Um, so, so like, yeah, during Teach for America, that, that that was very much the priority. I knew that I had other priorities, but like, when it, when I was going to be approaching my day, I was like, okay, 
I am going to get these things done. They, it's something which I can control. It's a function of how much effort I and, and time I put toward these. So by identifying right the, the non-negotiables, by identifying what has to happen, um, is that's definitely the, the first step in terms of being proactive. It helps so that you never get to the point of like, you know, oh crap, there's this other thing which is non-negotiable, which has come up. Right? If you're able to identify those non-negotiables ahead of time, um, to the extent that you can, I mean, sometimes stuff comes up, but if you're able to identify those non-negotiables, um, then it does become a lot mentally easier. Once you, I guess, are able to meet the external um, non-negotiables, right? So like I have, I have class at 11, 1, and 3, and if, if those lesson plans are not done, then I, will, I cannot be teaching. Um, once you're able to identify those, you, you can, and, and meet those, right? You can start setting your own non-negotiables, right? Like um, bedtime is 9 p.m., um, and you have to be done by then, uh, and then you start attacking it from there. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's entirely tied up with your priorities, both external and internal, and how you can attack those. Now, to your point about journaling or doing any sort of written planning, um, it's not something I've used for my general day-to-day goals, um, but certainly for, for athletic planning, um, it can be very useful to have those things written down right have your plan out um make make a plan of attack um and 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 for that i definitely use um use use journaling i think in terms of your professional goals it's really dependent on yeah what profession you're in Um, for me as a teacher the way i kept things clear was i just um tried to stay a week ahead at all times so that, that was that was what made the most sense to me uh, Monday I was working on next Monday's work Tuesday I was working on next Tuesday's work and I was able to adjust my non-negotiables to be like okay instead of being ready you know by the time class starts like no I'm going to be ready the day before I'm going to be ready two days before I'm going to be ready a week before um, and admittedly that's very difficult to enact uh, in the middle of the year and this is really something which I started from the beginning of the year and was able to to maintain um, so yeah it, it really does depend on what your goal is is it professional is it um, athletic is it personal and there are always different ways to plan but being able to plan is is a huge part of that yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it sounds like a, I guess, strategic thing that you're talking about, like overarching ideas, like yeah. clarity in a lot of ways, like clarity of what your intentions are, what your goals are, but then also clarity of how you want to progress, how you want to continue to challenge yourself by being ready two days before rather than an hour before. Yeah. Um, so I think clarity is absolutely huge. Like I personally am pretty meticulous with having a calendar, just mm-hmm. like really looking at every Sunday, Monday through Sunday, really getting clear on, all right, I have this thing on Tuesday, this thing on Friday, and getting clear and intentional about what you want to happen at those certain events. Um, it might be, I guess, kind of a micro on the kind of visualizations you were talking about with the Everesting, because obviously that's a very tangible thing of you visualizing yourself going up the hill, but even 
I guess, like an intention setting of how you want to show up in a specific meeting or how you yeah. want a specific event to go, I think is something that's, you know, really powerful as well. Yeah, I know we're on the professional topic and I like to get back into that, but I have a personal question for you. Sure. So I self, I self identify as very type A and I think type A tendencies versus type E tendencies, I'm generalizing here, but type A is more like meticulous in organization, order, like productivity. I get this, I call it productivity high, but I'm very, I'm not just doing busy work, but I'm truly in a condition and I'm truly producing like valuable stuff with this for work. I get this high, I get this, I feel yeah. good and I love being productive. And I think it's like a pillar that a lot of type A people share. And, but one of the, I guess, greatest shortcomings and downfalls of type A people that I've seen, and this includes myself, I guess in this case, my truth is I'm not as flexible, right? I'm very rigid because I like to plan things ahead. Mm -hmm. I like to have this meticulous vision or this picture of what I want to accomplish X, Y, and Z. Not so much of a five-year plan or a 10-year plan, three-year plan, but I know exactly what I want. And I know exactly the process because I think if you control the process, you can to a certain degree control the outcome. And that's what drives me, right, as a type A person. But uh, so, for example, um, during Teach for America, I was not able to finish the core commitment because of my uh, army deployment that happened. And as you would know, I've, I spiraled down into this pretty dark depression for a couple of months. I lost appetite. I lost the drive to work out, which has never happened to me. And But I don't know how much of that was from the fact that, you know, back in uh, two and a half years ago when... Uh, the U.S. was still in a hostile, potentially hostile relationship with North Korea, and I was being summoned to do just that. So my life was potentially at stake, right? But I don't know how much my depression or my darkness was derived from my danger aspect, or rather the fact that that has completely derailed my plan. Because I had very clear-cut goals. I gave up private consulting, lucrative fields come to teaching, because I had this clear goal, I'm going to do this, and as a, as a stepping stone, as a thing to, you know, hone my skills, I'll get better at everything, all, all aspects of my life and to get to the next goal. And that deployment happened, which derailed everything. And I, I think now being able to reflect back upon it, I think that's what depressed me the most versus, oh, I might die because that was still very uncertain, you know. It's not potentially life and death, but the fact that now I have to be in the South Korea border for the next year versus... I can finish this and do all these things. And that has really destroyed me. And so I think one of the shortcomings I've reflected upon throughout my life is I'm not, I'm not very flexible because I'm, I'm very rigid. And I think that rigidity gives to me the preparation that's needed and the, the vision that I have, but it doesn't allow me to be as flexible when something comes up, right? So because you are so structured and you have this meticulous planning and I'd say most aspects of your life, I wonder how you deal with abroad surprises that you ha- didn't prepare. If it does, if not, uh, please feel safe. So, but yeah. if it does, how do you maneuver and navigate between those? I mean, to the point about um, lesson plans, actually, be- being so planned out in advance um, actually provided a lot of uh, reassurance in case there was something which came up. Uh, because, it, yeah, it, it gave me a buffer um, to adjust things to... Even if it did mean, you know, work adjusting things I've already done, um, that would be less work than, you know, having to redesign and start from scratch. Um, yeah, being, being well-planned um, was, was a way to cope with things changing. Um, I think, though, like, in general, in terms of, like, how I structure um, my 
my life and my my days and and all of that. And I think this is this is more true for the past two years as opposed to um, more recently. More recently, I I do have a lot more time. Um, I'm not quite so uh, rigidly structured. But yeah, over over the past couple of years. It has been. It was most helpful to keep big picture goals in mind. Um, so if things came up so that like I would have to miss this training session, I would have to um, put off an assignment until the next day. If if things come up like that, um, I I find it most helpful to maintain the big picture goals. Okay, like why am I training? What, what am I training for? Can I prioritize this assignment on during a different time, during a different day? Will I still get the same goals or at least an, you know, a, a suitable or acceptable goal? Um, and, and being able to, to stay big picture that way definitely allowed me to, to be a bit more flexible. Um, where where the rigidity comes in is is really just um, consistency and men- mentally being consistent is the easiest way for me to deal with my goals. Um, it's a way to keep me accountable. If I'm unable to be consistent, uh, I'll, I'll I'll definitely admit there's a certain anxiety that goes along with that. Um, so so I think I, I identify that um, as well. But um, to the extent I can. You know, taking a step back and looking, looking more big picture is, is the biggest way that I've tried to, to deal with that anxiety. Thank you for listening to another episode of Discover More. We release a new episode every Monday on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And would really appreciate if you have subscribed and shared this with your friends. We hope you enjoyed this episode and join us next week in the journey of discovering more through intentional dialogues.